0: Big question. Hmm. What if the story that we as Australians have been getting told about how our Australian farmers feel about climate action, what if that story isn't exactly reflective of how Australian farmers actually feel about climate action? Climate action in farming looks like crop choices, ways to work the land, water management, soil management, methods of farming, all these sorts of things that, well, seem to be a pretty clear path forward to not only sustainability, but economic prosperity. Well, that's what we are going to talk about today with Dr. Annika Molesworth. Before we get to that, we're going to have to play some ads because we're keeping the lights on here at uh, Better Than Yesterday. We're trying to uh, boost up our ability to pay the bills um, by uh, getting the Patreon back off the shelf and putting it back out there with some extra special perks. So if you want to hear an ad-free version of this podcast, I'll tell you how later in the show. But we may need to play an ad here. If you hear an ad, thank you. You're helping us play the team. If you don't, you're going to hear Annika Molesworth say something awesome. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Farmers here in Australia, we make up less than 1% of the population. So sometimes it is difficult to get heard. And so stereotypes are formed, especially if there's a a red-faced man in a, a cubra pretending to be talking for farmers and describing what farmers think about climate action. And what is being described currently from some federal political members is completely inaccurate is doing serious reputational damage to aussie farmers and is putting us and our industry in the path of danger so we absolutely can do something about it now and not just sit back and wait for someone else to do something but do it ourselves like be the leaders that we've been waiting for
0: that is the founding director of Farmers for Climate Action, Dr. Annika Molesworth. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Today. welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. This is a podcast that is here to make your day today better than yesterday. That's what it says on the box, and we've been doing it every week since 2013. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest, and Fridays, I'm here with you. My name's Osha Ginsberg. I'm a uh, the author. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a guy who's sitting in his. Electric Nissan Leaf on the side of the highway in Goulburn, currently charging at uh, 64 kilowatts. Holy moly! Sucking in kilowatt hours out of a roadside DC fast charger as I make my way back to Sydney. And uh, so yeah, I'm sitting in a vehicle from the future right now. Oopsie daisy, uh, futures now. Anyway. And I'm grateful you're here. Thanks heaps to those of you who have been supporting us through the week on Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash Osher. There's an ad-free version of the show and there's a few other perks there. That really helps us keep the lights on, really helps us pay the bills. We are also heading out on the road. We're coming to uh, Melbourne and we're coming to Brisbane. And I'll tell you about that later in the show. If you ever want to get in touch with me, send Osher email at gmail.com. That is where you can find me. Let me tell you about my guest today. I am so very, very, very happy to have this person on the show, particularly because most of Australia has just lived through or is still living through what has been called a one-in-100-year flood. However, it is the third one-in-100-year flood in the last 10 years. So it's probably about time we stopped calling them that and just started calling them what they are. This is climate change. This is the more intense wet seasons. And if you're in the West Coast, the more intense bushfire seasons and earlier bushfire seasons or later bushfire seasons that the IPCC has been telling us about for 40 years now. And so I'm super grateful to talk about this today because it's really, really important to have this conversation because if there's one thing that we saw over the last you know, a couple of days and weeks months, really, if you think about what happened to the potatoes in Victoria. That's a fun Google. Clean water and food supply are really, really affected when shit tons of rain comes down and washes crops away. Similarly, clean water and food supply are really, really affected when there is no rain for years at a time, which we have all just lived through. Well, not all of us, but if you own a phone, you're old enough to have lived through it. So both of these situations in the weather are our reality right now and they are our future. I'm not shaking a big stick and saying, be warned, but we need to accept that this is what our weather is now and we need to accept that the severity of these events will continue to increase. But we can, we all can do something right now today to try to slow them down and try to make them not get any worse and that's in all of our daily choices but I'm a big fan of upstream solutions why as a government ask everybody to flood proof their own houses when as a government you can build a dam upstream so I'm really really happy to have Dr Annika Molesworth on the show today she is a thought leader of agroecological systems, of resilience and international farming development. So that means, you know, crops and landscapes, very different to ours here in Australia. Annika is a founding director of Farmers for Climate Action, which is a national network of over 5,000 Australian farmers undertaking climate change action. She's committed to help creating sustainable sustainable, vibrant rural landscapes uh, right now and in the future. I've just been driving cross-country. This is why I'm in Goulburn, because I don't live in Goulburn. If you're out of the country, Goulburn is not near Sydney. It's probably about 180 k's away. I don't know what that is in American. I do, actually. I should really. How many miles? 60 miles is 100 k's. 60 is about 160, about 90. I fucked it up in my brain. Someone will do the maths for me and give me, anyway. (laughs) And driving across this country, boy, oh boy, Lake George was full. I haven't seen Lake George full since, Christ, I was nine when when I first came to Canberra in 1983. The trees are full of leaves, the grass is green, the hills are rolling. But that's the first time in decades I've seen it like that. So it's nice to see it right now, but it's super important to understand that this is not uh, how it is. And our ability to put food on our table and water in our taps and our cups and our kids' food and our toilets and our showers is something we're all going to need to think about. And farming is a part of that, right? Farming is a part of that. Now, our choices when it comes to food, our choices as to what we farm, our choices as to how we farm are all a part of you know, sustainability and um, making a choice to reduce emissions, if not negate, if not uh, go negative on the emissions. And this is a lot of what Dr. Annika Molesworth's work is about. She's written a book. It's called Our Sunburnt Country. It's, yeah, it's called Our Sunburnt Country by the lady that is one of the founders of Farmers for Climate Action. It's a read that you go, oh, shit. And that's okay because we need to understand this stuff. She was the 2015 Young Farmer of the Year. She was a finalist in the 2017 Young Australian of the Year honours. And you'll understand why when you hear her speak. She has such a brilliant style and just demonstrates extraordinary leadership in this area. And look, I know I come from a place of bias here because I am someone who's chosen to not eat animal products for the last 20 years on the basis of environmental impact and energy usage. So that is where I'm coming from. But I underst- I live with omnivores. My whole family is omnivores. I feed my son cheese and <laughs> and bacon for breakfast sometimes. And that's fine. So I understand that meat and dairy is a big part of the Australian diet. But I still wanted to talk to Annika about that. And she was great to talk to about that. And it's a conversation we need to have. It really is. I'm so grateful that we could have her on the show today. I'm so thrilled. You wait till you hear me. Just like how excited I get when I hear about how much land the farmers that she's brought together represent as a whole of our nation. It's 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 pretty exciting stuff. So if you want to find out more about Annika, you can find her online. But enjoy this conversation with Dr. Annika Molesworth. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm, I'm really grateful that we're, we're doing this together. Uh, my absolute together.
1: pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on.
0: I'm, I'm stoked. I'm stoked that we can do this. What part of the world do we find you in today, Anika?
1: So I'm on my family's sheep farm in far western New South Wales, so near Broken Hill.
0: How? Okay, that's far.
1: Yeah, it's pretty remote. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see a lot of people, I have to admit. Are
0: you, are you closer to Sydney or to Melbourne out there?
1: Uh, Melbourne, actually, but we're still like eleven hours drive from Melbourne.
0: <laughs> wow! Uh, so I've I've been out I've been out to that, that country. I was lucky mm-hmm. enough to go out there with um with work in the early early two thousands, and it, it's it's stunning. Yeah, it's st- stunning, stunning country to to be out there. You didn't grow up there, though, did you?
1: No, so I grew up in Melbourne. So I had quite a, an urban upbringing.
0: And when you grew up in, in Melbourne, I'm sure it's much like uh, we've got a, a toddler as well. We've got a toddler who's just two and a bit and a lot of his books involve farm animals and there's noises to make. And was that your relationship to farms and farming and like, oh, it's, you know, and, and you know, vegetables are something that are in a cling wrapped packet uh, <laughs> at the supermarket?
1: Yeah, that was more my understanding of, yeah, the food and farming system was, you know, what every urban school kid knows. Like, you go to the supermarket, you pick something off the shelf. It only became, yeah, my understanding of what actually the farming system involves happened when I moved out to Broken Hill. And it was a steep learning curve.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so what, what was going on with your folks at the time? What were they into that they went... You know what sounds great, honey? What's that? A sheep farm, (laughs) 11 hours drive away. Brilliant. (laughs) Sell everything.
1: Yeah. So my parents have like a love of the environment and they come from an environmental field. So backgrounds in botany, geology, anthropology. And we had always spent like weekends camping, you know, bushwalking around Melbourne and my mum spent a bit of her childhood in Broken Hill, so we had, like, a reason to come and visit on our way to somewhere else. But we got to Broken Hill and we kind of just stopped here. <laughs> and it was a nice place to stop because, as you say, like, your jaw hits the floor. Like, it is an amazing landscape, like, absolutely stunning.
0: <laughs> my my Broken Hill story is we were, I was still running at the time and I got up the day after the gig and I ran – uh, I just I was doing about 12Ks a day at the point, yeah, and wow. I ran within, within about 2Ks uh, the irrigation stopped, so all the front lawns were no longer green. Yep. And then about 3Ks later, there was just nothing, and I got out to about 6 where I was going to turn around, and I saw a wedge-tailed eagle as big as me <laughs> just chewing on the carcass of a kangaroo, and it just kind of watched me like... I could take you mate. I'm busy eating this, but I could take you if I wanted and that's when I turned around and ran home.
1: <laughs> Wise choice. <laughs> big animal. They very are. Very big animal. Oh, they're incredible. Yeah, they they glide around the skies up here over our our house and our farm and they're just they're magnificent.
0: So your folks said, you know, let's get this they jumped on, you know, realestate.com and went that looks good. Um, you know th- three, five, twenty car spaces and a you know <laughs> squillion hectares um, why go out there? Why choose that as a career path for them?
1: So I think like they had always you know loved being involved with nature, and I think they had an idea of some point would love to own a piece of land and just you know live closer alongside the natural world, you know get out of the hustle and bustle of the city. And, you know, this place came on the market and when we came and visited it, like we all fell in love and it was uh, sort of 1999, it was green, there was kangaroos bounding over the paddocks, there was water in the dams and for me, like a, a kid from Melbourne, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most incredible playground, canoes on the water, horses in the paddock, And I think I fell very quickly for this place and realized, like, I want to spend my life here. I want to take on the family farm when I'm older. I want a career, you know, growing food for people, like food that actually goes to nourish people's bodies. Like, what a a meaningful, you know, work to do.
0: And what happened to that green lush landscape over the next few years as, as you, and bear in mind, you were you were 12 when you got there. So yeah. not only are you, and I've, my stepdaughter was 10 when I met her and the difference between who she was when she was 10 and who she was when she was 14 was very different. So not only are you going through this vast transformation, but the land around you began to change, didn't it?
1: yeah it sure did. So the year 2000 was the start of the millennium drought, the ten year long drought here in Australia, and that impacted you know much of the country, especially the far west region of New South Wales. you know we were very badly hit by this drought time. And over the seasons, over the years, I watched the water evaporate from the dams, the vegetation blow away in the dust storms. We trucked off the sheep that we had purchased, you know, selling them to ease the grazing pressure on the land. I saw, you know, the mental toll that was taking on people around me, people becoming stressed and agitated. And a drought doesn't have, you know, a defined end point. You don't actually know if it's going to end next week or in five years' time. And so there is that sort of growing angst um, and concern. And as a farmer, you feel a great sense of responsibility, like you are a caretaker for this parcel of of land. You are looking after the welfare of your animals. You are, you know, part of the backbone of your, your community. And when you sort of see that break apart, it really does, you know, take a toll on you at a very personal level. Uh, So watching that occur around me, you know, had a really big impact on me.
0: What was it like watching your parents, these people who with such great love of country and love of nature, witness you know, they'd taken their family to this utopian place and, and witnessed this kind of dream they had just kind of falling to bits. What was it like? Because I'm sure their experience is very similar to some of your neighbours. I call them neighbours. You probably can't walk there. Um, <laughs> what was that? You know, I'm sure that this experience is probably very similar to people in your community. What was it like watching your parents go through that?
1: Well, you know, as a, a kid, I think I didn't quite grasp the concept of what drought was at that time. Like, yeah, it's drying out around me, but I didn't quite understand that the gravity and the magnitude of it until, you know, seasons rolled into years. And I was like, gosh, like, this is actually really bad. And this is really impacting, um, you know, the family the business, the whole community, the whole region. And, you know, you do carry that concern as a kid too. And especially someone like myself, who like loves animals so much, loves being outdoors. And, the emus disappeared, the kangaroos vanished. I would go for walks in the paddock and it was silent, like there were no birds anymore. And you didn't really start to question, like, what is going on around you?
0: That that sounds spooky.
1: Yeah, it was. It was really eerie. So you have this, you know, this unknown, um, you know, event that you can't quite comprehend what's going on around you. And then also like you're experiencing things like dust storms and dust storms are these, you know, giant monsters of sands that you see like coming on the horizon. You know, the the horizon turns this, this rust color, then this deep burgundy, and then they just roll and become larger and larger, you know, reaching right up to the skies and completely engulf you in your house. And, you know, in the really bad ones, it would turn day to night and you couldn't go outside And you feel very, very insignificant. You know, there's obviously as a kid, you're like, oh, my God, like what's going on? There's an air of excitement too. But you know that this is a bad event occurring around you and you have to sit and wait it out.
0: And from what I understand, like that's that's like topsoil and a lot of the stuff that we need to – produce nutritious food that allows us to get through our day just vanishing
1: absolutely so that topsoil is a very thin and fragile you know membrane of life it stores the carbon the nutrients the seed bank and when that is whipped up and blown away sometimes you know thousands of kilometers away all the way to sydney or melbourne you're losing that precious layer of nutrient and layer of life and you know that is taking it's having real damage on your land
0: at the time, I I was living in, in America uh, for a lot of this this period, but I was here for enough of the time and, you know, I'd go to the grocery store and be like, oh, wow, lettuce is expensive. Moving on. That's about as much as it was for me, you know, and I'm probably, I have a very similar, you know, I guess we'll go without ice cream this week. Ice cream seven bucks a bucket. Maybe we won't have ice cream this week so we can, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's just like the the grocery bill is a few extra bucks, but that's about the impact that you see living in the the suburban area. Do you think that if we were face-to-face with these cataclysmic dust storms, if we were face-to-face with the emus vanishing and the kangaroos disappearing, would we take it more seriously than just, oh, the register's a little different this week?
1: I definitely think so. And I've you know been on trips to Sydney and people go, oh, I'm so sorry, it's raining here today. And I sort of like look at them almost in disbelief going, oh, my God, like, <laughs> do, you know, do you understand like the lifeblood that rain is and that, you know, we're experiencing our sixth year of drought out there. And that really does impact what we can grow and where we can grow food for you. And so there has been this incredible disconnect between people and the natural world. We have somehow like disassociated ourselves from the planet and think that we operate in isolation and that obviously has had very real and very poor implications for the planet, that we think the way that we can consume, use, exploitate natural resources, the way that we can ignore extreme weather events like droughts, floods and bushfires and carry on as you know, business as usual, it's, it's not working. Um, and that's why we're seeing you know, this degrading environment around us and the flow onto a degrading social fabric as well. And I uh, and I think this is why I do so much in the communication space and trying to connect people to land to describe these incredible landscapes around Australia the beautiful species that we share this planet with to help them feel connected to help them understand that we are we are so lucky this place is so fragile and we have a responsibility to look after it
0: the disconnection between uh, and it's, it's astonishing that this, we just have this experience of we drive our car, usually drive our car to the grocery store and uh, panic buying pre-lockdowns aside, the shelves are always full and everything's fresh and everything's in season. And we don't even think about it. We're probably listening to a podcast or tooling around on our phone while we just shove things in the trolley and we're out of there in 13 minutes or less. And we're back in the car, we throw it all in the fridge, and we flick on some Netflix. Like, the idea that care for our land, care for country, uh, cl- positive action on climate is linked to our food security, <laughs> that is, has is completely disconnected.
1: Oh, absolutely. You think of, like, climate environment over here in one little sphere. You think of, like, food and what's on your plate over here. Um you know, farming something else. It's like, no, this is one in the same system, and what we do, how we interact at any of these touch points has a flow and effect, either positive or negative. But we somehow have, like, yeah, lost that understanding that this is a very interconnected, complex system, and therefore the way we interact with it and our responsibility to act, you know, appropriately is going to either, you know, make the system or break the system.
0: <laughs> to act appropriately is <laughs> what I'd like to get to at the end of this conversation. Uh, but let's, at what point, uh, you were still a teenager uh, when this is all going on. You're So you're, you're in your mid-teens, you're in your, you know, your fifth year of drought, you're possibly still going, oh, I still want to take over this farm. Um, at what point did you start to go, eh, maybe this is not just weather, maybe this is something bigger. What else is going on here? When did you start to first explore the idea of permanent changes to the weather patterns and and global warming?
1: Well, my dad um, borrowed from the old video store Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. The classic. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, Those beautiful Friday evenings of walking around the aisles, choosing which video to... (laughs) Borrow for the weekend. All right,
0: everybody gets a dollar weekly and y'all need you to
1: agree on one year release. No fighting. We're out of here in three minutes or no pizza. (laughs) Oh, that's it. Nailed it. Um, (laughs) And, yeah, my dad, you know, borrowed an inconvenient truth and I couldn't believe it and, you know, put that on for our Friday night movie. And, you know, I complained and whinged a lot thinking, gosh, I don't want to watch a film about the weather. How incredibly boring. But as I sat there and watched it, it was like the dots were connecting in my mind. You know, okay, so we people are, you know, extracting um, fossil fuels from the ground. We're burning them. We're putting dangerous uh, emissions into the atmosphere. This is destabilizing the climate. This is causing more frequent and intense droughts, floods, bushfires. That's having very real impact on communities, on the economy, and the story just clicked for me. And I went, wow, okay, this is climate change. And then I was able to walk out into the paddock and see, you know, the drought, feel the heat waves, see the dust storms and go, I get it now. Like, I understand that the way that we humans are interacting with the planet is, you know, actually contributing to these problems that we are experiencing. We are the problem makers here. But then on the flip side of that, it means that we're the problem solvers and we need to fix this.
0: And, and for, I guess, uh, uh, the argument against uh, for meaningful climate action has been for the last 20-something years, and we won't get into who drives it or who makes money off of promoting this, but it is like you can't have both. You can't have modern life and... A way of living that doesn't impact so harmfully make your choice because it's one or the other and i don't want to live without my whatever all right but that's not the case is it at all
1: it's not at all yes unfortunately there are a lot of misleading toxic narratives out there which corral people to think and act in certain ways and they make us fear the future. They make us worry about transitioning to something else. They talk about sacrifices, job losses, damage to the economy. And it is terribly dangerous. They, they are terribly dangerous words and thoughts, I believe, because it encourages the continuation of what we're doing, the status quo, and it encourages very poor behaviour and interactions with our planet. And that is putting us directly on a path of danger. So we need to absolutely, you know, challenge that narrative, put out better ideas, thoughts, commentary about this topic, and do it in a truthful manner. It is saying, yes, the the evidence shows us that it is bad, that we are at a point of crisis and we need to observe the science, But not then bury our heads in the sand or hide under the dune or in fetal position and go, you know, someone else should do something about this. It's actually stepping forward and go, well, we all need to do something about this, every individual, every sector. And we can do something about it. And when we do these things, these abundance of solutions that are actually within our reach, within our grasp, there is a flow of positive benefit that actually (laughs) we receive from it. And so, you know, putting it in that positive narrative makes people go, oh, okay, yeah, we can do this and we should do this.
0: Yeah, the the idea of you know we the 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 way forward is some sort of agrarian subsistence farming where we all like that's impossible. It's like you could sooner de-electrify a city than ask every citizen in the country or you know whatever part of the world you're in to grow their own food. Um, that's not how it is. We are a community. We are a society. We have developed and shifted to live in massive population groups, uh, and we rely on parts of the land that lots of people don't live in to provide us food. And there are many, many, many ways that we're not waiting for things to be invented. You know, uh, there was a, how shall I put this? A recent very high profile plan put forward that had some gaps, uh, in how we're going to do things. There's, there's no gaps. Like it's, it's right there and it's, it's, it can be done. It just needs, as you said, the commitment, uh, the commitment to, to do it. Um, and, Putting forward the idea that there's actually abundance when we do these commitments is, uh, it seems like bonkers for people. They look like they've been slapped 20 times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's it. And as you so rightfully say there, I mean, it's not an issue of knowing what to do or having the technologies or practices to do it. We've got all that. We know what to do. We've got the technologies. We've got the practices. At this point in time, it's, it's willpower. It's determination. It's actually like, putting that behaviour in action and putting those solutions in place. And we can absolutely do that.
0: There's a, a line of yours um, that is harrowing, as it is positive, um, that the biggest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. And that's... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> but I'd rather not get to the point where you know, half the freeway is washed away at every river mouth on the way, you know, north. And people go, oh, maybe we should do something because these floods keep coming. Maybe before we get to that, before we have to spend so much money on rebuilding infrastructure, maybe let's make a move because that's, you know, it's not an if, it's a when.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is why I love working in the rural community too and the farming community in particular, because... Every day there is a new challenge like thrown your way whether it is you know the cattle have pushed down the fence and got into the neighbor's yard or the tractor's bogged you know cleaning out the dam there's another challenge and the farmer generally doesn't sit back on the couch arms folded and go you know someone should do something about it they get up they go outside pair of pliers and some wire in hand most time and they fix the problem And I love that mentality of just getting on with it. Yes, there are problems every single day that are thrown our way, and they are our problems that we need to solve. We need to get off our backsides and actually do something about it. And climate change is no different. Every single one of us is contributing to this issue, to this problem in our lifestyles. But that means every one of us can actually make tweaks in our lifestyle. Whether it's to do with you know our our purchasing habits, um, the way we eat and consume resources, the way we um, you know vote, use public transport, or otherwise, you know all of these aspects in our lives can be improved by being more conscious about what we're doing and how we're living.
0: I've got skin in the game when I ask you this question, Anika, and I firstly I want you to be a hundred percent sure that I mean it when I say it. What anybody else wants to put in their mouth is completely up to them, doesn't bother me at all. And as someone with a PhD in agroecosystems, where does the role, I haven't eaten meat in nearly 20 years and it was purely much like yourself. It clicked for me, the impact of animal agriculture on um, our food supply, on our water security, on our land use, like that's that's a lot of, you know, raw material to make this much protein when this much raw material and this much land can make the same amount of protein. Ah, easy. And that's been that way ever since for me. That's my choice and my choice alone. As someone with a PhD in agroecosystems, where do you see our dietary habits fitting into this climate solution that we have to
1: find? So important, so important. And especially when people go, oh, the climate problem is, it's so big, so complex, I don't even know where to begin. Like, begin with your food. Begin when you open up that fridge door or you walk down the supermarket aisle. Like, what you put on your plate, how you consume it, how you waste it does have a very real impact on the whole food system and obviously the climate system, which is very much interlinked in that. So by selecting food which is local, seasonal, nutrient-dense, native foods, generally plant-based foods, they are climate-smart foods. By avoiding foods that have been flown in from the other side of the planet and wrapped in styrofoam and plastics, that reduces our carbon footprint. And also by you know, spending appropriately, by fairly compensating the farmer, you give them the financial resources to manage that land in the best way possible. So they can destock, you know, remove livestock when the drought is really bad. They can put out you know, new irrigation infrastructure so they're using less water to water their crops. Um, that gives them the financial resources to make improvements that we need in the farming system. And also how we waste our food in Australia is ridiculous. Like I think we throw out one in four supermarket bags of food and if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitter. That is ridiculous. So just the the simple fact of finishing your meal and not scraping half of it into the bin goes a long way in helping to solve this problem.
0: The tricky question, the uh, the the actual elephant in the corner of the room is the – Atmospheric impact of of livestock, not the let's not even the ethics of it. Like cows and sheep and pigs, they fart, and methane is not good news. Um, when it comes to meat in our diets and the raising of animals, uh, what do you see is the is the future for not only people who've got generations of their families raising these animals and You know how they may move forward to a more sustainable way, or you know people who have deep family traditions in this is the meal that mum makes. Um, How might that move forward in this? You know now we kind of we can't ignore it; it's a fact. um, How might we move forward from that?
1: Yeah, well, I guess two things um, in in that comment that you know going back to what we were speaking about earlier, we do generally have you know the the knowledge and the technologies to get on top of the climate problem. Now it is more of a, a cultural, structural and political issue. And culture, as you say, the way that we have produced food over generations, Most, a lot of farms are multi-generational businesses. They have been passed down from their parents, their grandparents. And so the way that food has been produced is rather deeply embedded into rural communities. There's also obviously, um, although this is improving over time, but rural people are geographically isolated. They're f- far away from, you know, the research institutes that are coming up with new innovations, new understanding, and we have to do a lot better of actually getting good information out here in the rural areas to make sure that they are, you know, keeping on top of the the, the science, understanding what ways they can adapt and change their farming businesses and, as a society, making sure they have the financial resources to be able to do that. Going back to the methane emissions from livestock, so ruminant animals, sheep, cattle, goats, they produce methane, they burp methane as part of their gut digestion process. There is a lot of research being done in this field of how do we reduce methane from livestock. And that can be through better genetics, it can be through feed supplements, such as feeding a small part of um small portion of algae to ruminants, reduces the methane being emitted. Uh, and actually, Meat and Livestock Australia has an incredible ambitious target of being carbon neutral by 2030. And when I look across the farming sector, again, this is why I'm so proud to be part of the agricultural sector, it has some of the most ambitious climate targets in place across all the different sectors. And the farming community is absolutely striding in this space because we live and work so closely with the natural world. We understand that it's changing. These places are our homes, they're our businesses, they are our culture, they are our past and our future. And that's why I'm so interested in looking after them and looking after the landscapes as well as the animals that are in our care under our responsibility. So there is a lot of need for further you know, investment into research, development, extension, so farmers have the capacity to amplify and expand their efforts that are already being done. But farmers obviously can't do this alone too. You know, changes in the agricultural sector are more slow-paced and more difficult because you are working with crops, you are working with seasons, you are working with animals. And that's why we absolutely need to be expanding the conversation to such as the energy and the transport sector and make sure they are pulling their weight because it is a lot easier and a lot quicker to cut emissions from other sectors than it is from agriculture.
0: I, when I hear about and when I read about, and you mentioned you touched on it like a couple of years ago when I started to read about adding seaweed into into live into um uh, when adding seaweed into feedstock for for cattle and the amount of uh, methane reductions that were possible there. Um, it it just it really I was so buoyed by that. Uh, and again, I'm I'm not I'm not someone who eats it, but you know, for for people that do, it's like wow, this is this this really is is like people trying to find solutions that allow this lifestyle that we, we hold on to. I mean, we, we, there is, what was it? There's no greater love than the love of food. Like it truly is. Food is so important to who we are as people and how we connect. And when I see things like that and I see, you know, a, a community of farmers who do get a bad rap, especially when it comes to regional Queensland uh, uh, MP seats, uh, when it comes to a community of farmers is like, Oh, you know, people are, this is a misconception that people aren't forward thinking. it's a misconception that people are challenged by change. Like, what do I need to do to keep my my cattle farm, uh, you know, sustainable or, you know, economically and environmentally now, the two things are converging. Um, great, great change. Brilliant. Let's do it. Hit the go. Go. Let's do it. Let's change our farming practices. Let's go. Where do you see, Anika, where do you see the disconnect between the farmers that you lead as part of the, the Farmers for Climate Action? Uh, when you see, where's the disconnect between those farmers and what the, 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 shall we say, m- m- red-faced people in parliament in suits who claim to be your voice, uh, where's the disconnect between those two people?
1: Mm, I have no idea who you're referring to there. Um, yes. So Farmers for Climate Action, uh, we have over 6,500 farmers here in Australia who are championing climate solutions. And that is an incredible number of farmers who are stepping up, say looking, at, you know, the science, the evidence in the eye. What's
0: the hang on, what's the landmass? What's the landmass that six and a half thousand farmers are in charge of? Oh gosh.
1: Um I would have to look that one up, <laughs> I don't know. It'd <laughs> be fucking huge. It's significant. That'd be like
0: the size of most countries. Like yeah, exactly. bigger. Like we're talking an independent body of people who are directly in charge of, of climate policy on a patch of land outside of government. Po- That's what of bat you're swinging with. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, we have more members than a lot of political parties and uh, industry bodies out there. So that goes to show the, the seriousness that farmers take climate change at and wanting to do something about it. They're not sitting back waiting for someone else. They're going, yeah, like, I want to learn about this topic. I want to adapt my farm practices. I want to reduce emissions from my farm... Um, system, and I also want policies and strategies in place so we can do this effectively. Going back to why there is a disconnect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I ask that question all the time, and I think there, there is a lot of reason why we are seeing a growing voice come out of rural Australia, especially the farming community, because there is such a wide and obvious gap between some federal political members who claim to be representing farmers and their absolute lack and dismissal of climate change and the seriousness of it. And we've got to correct that.
0: But a politician in an Okubra standing in front of a dusty field makes for a great stand-up TV interview, Anika.
1: It does, yeah, and we've got to move past those you know, those little catchphrases and those little glamour shots of someone wearing a Nakubra has the right to speak for all farmers. No, I, I mean, the numbers speak for Always men too, to, yeah. every
0: fucking time, it's always, <laughs> always men.
1: Uh, it's unreal. And, look, honestly, it feels me and it feels so many people out here in the rural regions that I speak with, with frustration, with grief, with anxiety, because we are living it. We are living the impacts of climate change. We are feeling the impacts, you know, at our hip pocket, in mental health, in young people leaving our regions, in the welfare of of our livestock, and with the beauty and vibrancy of our landscapes. And that's why we refuse to stand, you know, as silent witnesses or bystanders allowing this degradation to happen because it's not going to happen on our watch. No way.
0: I'm so grateful to hear you say that and the conviction in your voice makes me so, so thrilled, Anika. The... As I mentioned before, the, the the best environmental practice and the best economic practice are very, very quickly converging and soon will overlap and soon overtake uh, if they haven't already in many, many sectors. What does a carbon-neutral future look like for farming in our country, which is a particularly unique environment? It spans many, you know, temperate climate zones to frigid climate zones it's it's a very interesting huge space but what what does the what's the economic upside look like for farmers who may have i don't know i've got 50,000 head of cattle had that in the 70s my granddad ran that and now this is what it looks
1: like mm. We need to constantly be asking ourselves every single day, like, is this the best we can do? And absolutely adapting, tweaking, evolving, especially as new information comes to hand. And what we do on farm at, you know, at farm scale, at individual level, really does matter. But it will be different On every single farm, what I do on my family farm will be different from our neighbour's property because we have different labour resources. We have different financial capacity. We have different soil types and natural resources that we are working with. And so it's very difficult to paint a broad brush of these are the solutions that everyone should implement. No, it's going to look different for every single person. And we should accept that and celebrate that. Generally speaking, of course, we... (laughs) <laughs> we, are, Well, actually, you know, we absolutely need to be doing this. We need to be keeping vegetation um, on, in the ground. Uh, we can't be releasing more carbon into the atmosphere. This is especially important for high carbon landscapes, so primary forests, peak lands, those kind of things. We can't allow that carbon to be going up into our skies. Uh, we need to be making sure that we're looking after our soils because there is a lot of carbon captured in our soils. And so by, you know, treating them poorly, um, by releasing that carbon back into the atmosphere, that's also, you know, contributing to the climate crisis. We need to be working with the researchers on things like how do we reduce methane from our livestock? How do we think in a more holistic, big picture perspective of this is an ecosystem? How do we look after the biodiversity, the native wildlife, the plants? Um, and also make sure that no one gets left behind. And this is then expanded to the conversation of a just transition of, yes, there are people and sectors that, and communities that are going to have to change more than others. But we as a society have you know, asked certain things of people and sectors and communities, and we need to respectfully work with them understand concerns fears make sure that there is you know a contingency plan in place strategies to move forward together and that will then take the fear and uncertainty out of this transition so people you know can look forward to the future and they should be able to look forward to the future
0: when it comes to things like um side hustles what can you give paint me a picture of you know, because it's this thing that I've heard. I don't know how real it is, but is there is there money to be made in in carbon sequestration? Is there money to be made by farmers in hey you take you burn those tons of carbon, I'm going to store those tons of carbon. Like, is is there cash to be made there?
1: Yeah. So this is an expanding market uh, in carbon sequestration, which is putting carbon that was in the atmosphere back where it belongs in the vegetation, in the soils, and the the most important thing with carbon sequestration is that the carbon gets locked up for a long time because carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has a residency time of about a thousand years. So unless we're doing the same and locking it back up for that kind of time frame. And yes, you're you're chuckling because humans are not terribly good at thinking in thousand year time frames. I'm <laughs> laughing
0: because if I don't laugh or chuckle I will weep in agony. <laughs> Because that's only there's two reactions. There's laughing in the face of horrible things or letting it destroy me. And I used to let it destroy me. So I have to laugh right now, Mika. But yes, you've got to lock it up for a thousand years.
1: We've got to be, you know, thinking in longer time frames and not, you know, three or four years. A three-year
0: election, year election term. term? Right <laughs> idea.
1: Exactly. This is what our planet needs. And also, I mean, there's there's biodiversity payments, you know, so that's also an expanding market of how do we look after native plants and animals and make sure that we have biodiverse and healthy ecosystems. So there is a, a diversified income stream potential as we move into these new areas.
0: At some point, some farmers may go, you know what, it might be more profitable to restore this landscape to what it once was there's some farms that you know if you've read um uh what's his name bruce Pascoe. some of bruce Pascoe's work there's parts of you know rural uh, new south wales at least which are now giant cattle or sheep farms that were just much just lush grassland just that went for to the horizon where is the value in farmers perhaps you know restoring some of those native grasses and, and putting you know looking after the soil that way
1: I think there's a lot of potential there. And I think as Australians, we should really be celebrating native foods um, and like opening that up because rarely do I ever see any native produce on menus, on supermarket shelves, in recipe books. And that's really unfortunate because I walk out in the paddock and I am picking and grazing and it is the most delicious foods out there you know native spinach saltbush leaves little um you know ruby saltbush berries which are like sweet and sour at the same time which just burst in your mouth and i wish other australians knew and enjoyed this food that we can grow here in abundance which is well suited to our climate and soil types so we have a lot of work to do in that space I think it also then goes back to like the fair compensation, because so often as consumers, we are encouraged to buy the cheapest possible food um, at any time of year from anywhere in the world. And we see ads on TV going, you know, prices down, 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 like this is what you want, buy it at rock bottom price. How is a farmer actually supposed to like manage the land well or try I
0: bought a palmer I bought a palmer so therefore I can have cheap food. Thank you very much Anika.
1: <laughs> cheap food does not actually look after the food system unfortunately. It does not actually look after the farmer or allow them to do something different. I I know a lot of farmers who would love to try doing something different on their land to see if it works better than what they're currently doing. But if they don't have the financial resources to do it and we just have people demanding cheap rubbish, <laughs> which they, they you know, label as food, how? I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> so we've got we've to change the way that you know, we're, what we're asking from the food system and what we're asking from the farmers.
0: Unfortunately, it is economically driven, and that's the that's what it is. And um, yeah, unfortunately, people pay the price. You will pay the price eventually. You will pay the true cost, whether it be with your health outcomes, uh, or usually that's your health is what you're paying for. Eventually, that's that's where it comes out in your doctor's bills from your um, you know colonoscopies when you get to your fifties. Absolutely, <laughs> so that's where it, that's where it shows up. So uh, again. I know it's, it's weird and, and people sometimes have a problem when I do this um, because I don't eat meat yet. I talk quite openly about, you know, my wife eats a lot of meat and it's fine. We've had probably 10,000 years of um, taking what were wild beasts and now there's like, there's no such thing as a cow. Like that is a man-made animal, you know, through selective breeding that's, you know, we have created this creature, this docile creature and same sort of species of sheep and, you know, breeds of sheep, you know, we've all seen temple Grand, and The research that has gone into, you know, getting this moving 800 kilos of future chops uh, into, sorry, uh, T-bones in into a shoot to, for slaughter and then processing. Uh, there's so much research around that. And I'm just fascinated to know this. Has there been any research in perhaps doing the same thing that we did with whatever wild beast was a cow and is now a cow to you know animals that are and you know mammals that are suited to our environment suited to our climate for example a kangaroo has there been any research in in trying to maximize the farming of what was a wild animal and turning it into you know more this is something that should end up on your plate because it's designed for this environment versus this thing that comes from Europe?
1: Uh, I'm not too familiar with the the research that is being done on kangaroos or other native animals at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of research being done on Australian, like native plant species like kangaroo grass and things like that where you could, you know, have a flower from and produce flour from and other seeds. Um but yeah, I I mean, we are seeing more kangaroo meats on the supermarket shelf, but still like not in the, the same quantity as other meat cuts and uh, meat sources out there. And maybe it comes back to, like, an educational piece, too, like, you know, explaining to customers, that, to eaters, that, you know, the the health benefits of eating kangaroo, um, both health benefits to the person and health benefits to the landscape and the planet. You know, they don't release the the methane in the same quantities as as ruminants, of course, and they are soft-footed, not hard-footed like livestock, so they're more... um, they have less impact on the landscape and the condition of soil and they eat native vegetation so you don't have to plant introduced species so there are a lot of benefits of actually looking locally first instead of looking at the introduced species and how we can tame our environment to grow something that is not well suited here
0: that and you said it's all about it's all about storytelling isn't it you know i mean for for, for goodness sake we eat you know, we eat lobsters. They're a weird, strange animal. And, you know, we, we pluck them out of the ocean. You know, it's, 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 it's wild this, this, how much tradition and culture plays in what we go. No, that's an okay thing to eat, but oh, that is not an okay thing to eat. That's all we've just decided. We just one day decided cows, yes, dogs, no. But Mm. in other cultures, it's like cows, yes, dogs, yes. And all that, that's, they just decide and they're all cool with it. It's just a choice that we make as a community. And it's all in, it's all in the storytelling. You mentioned earlier the the food system. And and what what do we need to help people understand that the food system starts with the the you know the farmer, she's out there, she's driving a tractor, she's sowing the seed, and the food system doesn't end at the supermarket. The food system ends at your rubbish bin or compost bin we need to get that extra, you know, two or three Ks for people to understand?
1: I mean, I would love people to be able to sit down at the dinner table, look at the food on their plate, and just take a moment to appreciate what is there, like the nutrients, the hard work, the labour, the the resources um, that went into producing that food because it is such a fascinating story and it is a story that should be celebrated. And I think building that respect for food means that we are much less likely to then scrape it into the bin. So hearing more stories from the regions, rural people, the farmers will help, you know, help people understand what goes into actually producing food. And it's also storytelling about climate change too, because so often climate change, it's presented in a way that is abstract and academic, and it doesn't resonate with people. We've had evidence at hand for decades and decades saying how serious this problem is and how quickly we need to get on top of it before we do irreversible damage. And we've by and large, ignored it or dismissed it or downplayed it. But if we speak in a language of, you know, what climate change actually means to us personally, locally, you know, why I care about climate change is because when I walk out in the paddock at sunset and I see a 360-degree, you know, fairy floss pink sky and there's galas in the trees and I'm walking my kelpie dogs with my parents, I love that place so much. Like that moment is something that I want to cherish and protect forever. And I know that is in the path of danger at the moment because of climate change. And so that's my driver and that's the story I tell, my love of landscape, my sense of belonging to place, my sense of responsibility to look after this this amazing system and amazing location, a moment that I'm part of. So interweaving the humanity back into these conversations, these complex conversations around climate change, around the food system, and explaining it in a way that is, you know, raw and authentic and fronts up to the challenges of what we're currently experiencing. It is serious. It does require urgent action. But we also are incredibly innovative species. like We can get on top of this. We can work together. We are collaborative. We are caring. We do have compassion in our heart for our communities and for life around us. And if we actually celebrate that and bring ourselves together, we could get on top of this problem. And, you know, I reckon we should.
0: Yeah. I mean, while we probably could get the calories and nutrition we needed from genetically modified hothouse-grown potatoes, aquaculture seaweed, and desalinated water, what we could get by, I'd rather not. I like bananas. I really do. Yeah. Bananas are my favourite, all right? I don't know what – well, we could probably figure out a way to deal with, you know, whatever is going to happen in the next 30, 40, 50 years. I don't want to. I like what we've got. You know, I really do, and I think it's worth trying to figure out how we can protect as much of it as we possibly, possibly can. If you have 6,500 members, Anika, I'm guessing the conversations, I mean, you started, you're one farmer, the conversations to get from two to four to eight farmers, doesn't. I'm guessing they weren't very hard conversations to have if you've got 6,500 members.
1: We only formed Farmers for Climate Action about five, six years ago. So in a very wow. short period of time, we have grown incredibly. And when we first got together, a group of 30 farmers in the Blue Mountains, and we sat down and we had like this this chat about, you know, I'm really concerned about climate change. And I really think it's being poorly communicated in the media and by politicians and by industry bodies. And I think we should do something about it. And the rate of you know people joining and asking like how can they be involved how can they help we were just like wow there are so many concerned people out there who get that this is a problem who want to be involved in the solutions you know they want to be the problem solvers to, to this and it's just so incredibly inspiring And so I'm always encouraging people like, you know, if if you have a concern, if you think that the status quo is not working, like voice your concern, put it out there in the world that something should be done about this. And you often find like minded people like gathering around you and going, yeah, I will help you work on that.
0: Just taking a moment from out of the podcast, talking with Dr. Annika about farming. To tell you that we are coming to a town near you, as long as that town is uh, Melbourne or Brisbane. We are going to be in Melbourne on the 3rd of April at the Chapel of Chapel. We're doing two shows there. We're going to be in Brisbane on the 22nd. Of April at the Powerhouse both places we've been before and we cannot wait to see you again we absolutely love it I'd love it if you could come along what we're doing is we're doing a, a live version of the podcast so what you're hearing me do right now with Annika, I'm sitting I'm having a conversation so the idea is that I'll, I'll come out and we'll, we'll have a little chat and then I'll bring out a guest and, and together we'll have that podcast experience and I, I really hope you can come be a part of it and there'll be time for questions and, and such and such. I, I really want you to c- come along. It'll be great because I really want to do more live stuff with the podcast. And this is the this is the pilot, really. You know, so if you could come along and support us here, we'd be able to show the powers that be that you know it's worth the the spend on the on the plane fare and the hotels and the production to do more of these and we'd love to do more of these I'm going to keep the guests a secret because I want you to have that moment of surprise but I will definitely be there Rachel will definitely be there I think Bree's going to be there in Melbourne you can get your tickets right now at osherginsberg.com O-S-H-E-R-G-U-N-S-B-E-R-G dot com Uh, super duper duper easy if you can't make it to a show but you still want to support us Patreon patreon.com slash osher for five bucks a month you can get an ad free version of this show now I'm really grateful to all the people that jumped on board this week. That's great. So excited to see so many more people getting amongst it. You are going to hear some ads here. If you don't want to hear the show with ads, uh, you can get a show without ads for five bucks a month, which is about the price. I'm sitting outside a servo here, so it's probably the price of 600 mils of water, which is way too expensive. And um, you know, so if you if I was thirsty and you saw me out and you went, "Hey man, do you want a water?" I said, "Yes, please," and you would just without hesitation tap your card or your phone and and buy me a five bucks of water then that's it i'd appreciate it if you were able to help us pay the bills Hear it better than yesterday headquarters but we do have to play some ads so if you're here for the ads thank you if you're not here for the ads we'll be back with annika milesworth in just a moment Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are petitioning the leader of the National Party, Barnaby Joyce, someone who has been known to stand up on morning television in an Akubra and claim to speak for the rural communities, the farmers of our country. You, 6,500 farmers, I'm going to guess people in charge, directly in charge of a landmass probably bigger than most of Europe. You are asking him to do something very serious, aren't you?
1: Yeah, we're wanting... Serious, ambitious, science-based climate strategies to be put in place, and I mean that's to save the planet. That's to save our food system.
0: I thought there was going to be more, but that's a pretty simple yeah, thing. It, it's simple. <laughs> that's really it. That's really that's really it. Like it's not rocket surgery. It's like no, no, no. This is it. Yeah. The the, the it, it seems lately. That this party that and I grew up in Queensland under the National Party, this party that claimed to be for the farmers. It seems likely this party seems to be more for the digging things out of the ground, shipping them overseas to get burnt than the farmers.
1: Yeah, it absolutely it seems that way. Um and I get like, yes, the the fossil fuel industry has been and is important here in Australia, and we as a society have benefited from that. And that's why we need to be respectfully working with the the sector and the people who are caught up in these high carbon emitting jobs to help them transition. And that also includes people in agriculture because we are also an energy intensive industry. A lot of the times, when you look at dairies or wineries or you know irrigating um, properties, they also want to learn how do we wean ourselves off you know, incredibly damaging, harmful fossil fuels which are disrupting our climate system and embrace renewable energies. And, you know, hurrah, we are the sunniest and one of the windiest continents on Earth. The potential to be running our homes, our businesses, our kids' schools off renewable energies is huge. Australia's chief scientist has said we could be a renewable energy superpower. Why aren't we doing this? Let's get on with it.
0: The why aren't we doing this part, I think, is the, that is the question that I, that a lot of people, I mean, I'm in in a bubble, I'm in this weird kind of bubble of entertainment, people, if only they did this, like, but if you've been through, God, if you've been up to grade 10, you can probably see cause and effect, you can probably see, oh, if we go that way, this happens, well, let's go that way, it's kind of new, but it's probably better than that, like, You don't need to be that educated to understand this stuff. Why are we not doing something about it? Yeah, I
1: think that's a question that so many Australians are asking, especially when, okay, if we just go back to a very fundamental level of why people care, like I care about my family. I care about them being well-fed. I care about having a meaningful, stable job for the future. All of these things are threatened by climate change and threatened by inadequate and delayed climate action. All of these things can be improved by acting on climate change now. So why aren't we doing this at the rate and the scale that is required?
0: That's really the question I hope people hold in their minds when they are looking at who they might be voting for in the next election and what they vote for with their wallets today when they go shopping. Because that that really is it. And we've it on this show before, we've spoken a lot about it. Upward market pressure on industries is very, very powerful. So people have heard us talk for nearly an hour now. If they want to go, all right, Anika, I'm with you. When they go you mentioned it before, but you know, when they go about their day, about their week, what are some choices that they can make that will directly impact industry and giving the industry the idea of like, okay, the market's wanting this, we'll give them that.
1: Yeah. I mean, so often we feel daunted and overwhelmed by climate change. We think of, you know, these corporations and these political systems as unmovable things, but they're not. Like we people as individuals have designed them and created them. And what we do in our everyday life influences them and how they behave and how they respond to crises like climate change. So the way we vote, the way we get around and move ourselves and our goods, the transport choices we make, um, the way we consume food, what we put on our plate, the price we pay for it, the way we waste it, our purchasing habits, whether it's, you know, a new season's outfit or a a new iPhone, like, do you need it? Or can you choose a better supplier of that goods or service? And this is where I then start to feel quite hopeful and excited, because there is such an abundance of things that we can do that would actually improve our situation. So it's remembering that and being more conscious of how we're interacting with each other and with the planet that will actually, you know, change these systems for the better and make sure that we have a vibrant, healthy planet long into the future.
0: The change is going to happen. It's it just how quickly. Because we'll be forced into it. You know, it's like, the, it's like the, the 50-year-old heart attack victim who gets somehow defibrillated and, you know, gets the stern talking to and then instead of just getting healthy becomes a triathlete. Yeah. No, that's, that's what we have ahead of us. We could, we could, we could wait for that, but it's going to be harder the longer
1: we wait. Yeah, the longer we wait to act on climate change, the more difficult it becomes, the more costly it becomes. So we absolutely can do something about it now and not just sit back and wait for someone else to do something, but do it ourselves, like be the leaders that we've been waiting for.
0: Talking to you and knowing that you represent six and a half thousand farmers who feel the same way just buoys my heart. And I'm sure that you know, people have stereotypical ideas of what people in the farming community might think about or, or you know, uh, how they feel about the world or who they might vote for because of, you know, stereotypes, right? But to hear you and hear that the people that you represent are aligned with you, it just... You're undeniable. And I can't imagine how any political party that is trying to or claiming to represent you cannot listen and not act and keep their job.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so this is why it's so important that we uh, get farmers' voices out there in the media, in you know the rooms with the politicians, on the nightly news desk, because farmers here in Australia, we make up less than 1% of the population, so sometimes it is difficult to get heard. And so stereotypes are formed, especially if there's a, a red-faced man in a, a cubra pretending to be talking for farmers and describing <laughs> what farmers think about climate action. And what is being described currently from some federal political members is completely inaccurate, is doing serious reputational damage to Aussie farmers, and is putting us and our industry in the path of danger.
0: I am so grateful that you do what you do. And thank you for the book. Our Sunburnt Country is, is the name of the book. And it's fuck, our, sorry, our sunburnt country is the name of the book. And it's a frickin' great read. If people want to support you, how can they best support you, Anika?
1: So I'm on the various social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, Insta, I have a website I also put up videos, but if your listeners are really interested in the topic of how climate change is impacting farmers and the food system and want to be more involved in finding the solutions that are out there, jump onto Farmers for Climate Action. They have a fantastic website, social media channels. They are running webinars all the time to help educate and inform people and bring solutions and conversations to the table. So go and check them out.
0: I love my country so much. Uh, I would do anything to protect my country. When I think about the country that my kids are growing up into, um, I, I'll do anything to, to save it for them, yeah. you know, and to give them that experience that I had of, you know, I want you to see a wedge-tailed eagle eating a kangaroo <laughs> and be, be afraid because there's still wildlife. You know, I want you to have that experience too and I'll, I'll do anything and I, I'm sure, and when everyone really thinks about it, it's like, well, hang on, what? The food that I just take for granted is in, is in jeopardy? Oh, shit. Like, that's what we've been talking about this whole time. Yeah, the food that you went and bought today, the food you'll go buy tomorrow to feed your family, that's in jeopardy, all right? That's climate change. And yeah. it's not happening in 20 years. It's not happening in 2030 or 2050. It's, hap- it's been happening four years, and it's happening right now. Yeah. and. It's not, there is something you can do.
1: It's, it's not a concern for the other side of the planet. It's not a concern for a future generation. It's, it's a concern right here, right now. And as you say, like climate change, it threatens every meal on every plate. And that's why we need to take it seriously.
0: Once you start threatening people's food, maybe they'll pay attention, you know? Because, <laughs> you know, I like, my, I like my cheap power and I like my big ute, la, 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 la. hang on, what? What I mean? There's there's no beef. What? <laughs> like, maybe that might get people to prick their ears up. Uh, Anika, you're incredible. W- whatever I can do to support you, please n- do not hesitate. Please, please, please reach out. I'll I'll, I'll I'll be grateful to be a part of what it is you're doing. Okay.
1: Thank you so much, Osha.
0: That was Dr. Annika Molesworth. You can find her. And all that she works by simply uh, searching up uh, Farmers for Climate Action, Australian Farmers for Climate Action. She's an extraordinary human being and the people that she represents are really brilliant and brave and courageous in pushing forward with sustainable, ecological, but also, let's say, economically viable business models into the future of how to keep our food and water Still there when we need food and water and leaving enough for the, you know, the koalas and the bees and the other wonderful things that we love about our country. She's an amazing person, and uh, I'm, I'm just so thrilled that she was able to come on the show. Her book is called Our Sunburnt Country, and if you want to get a little more of a taste of uh, what Dr. Annika Molesworth is about, you can check out her TED Talk. Just search Annika Molesworth on TED whatever, and, and you'll find her. She's pretty great. Thanks to everybody that helped me make this show today. Thanks to Andy Ma, my audio director, Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, who is, uh, yeah, currently figuring out how how long an HDMI lead do we need for when we do these live shows. So I don't know how long we can go before we start losing signal, but hopefully it's long. We'll we'll see that. Rachel's amazing. She gets shit done. She's fantastic. Thanks all so very much to Bree Steele on production and uh, research support and, uh, of course, Toe Hider on the music. We're back on Wednesday with a quick version from the back catalogue and I'll see you again on Friday this week, of course. If you need me between now and then, send Osher email at gmail.com. Stay safe, stay dry. Have a think about, as you're listening to your local Member of Parliament, as you're shopping for your groceries this week, have a think about what Annika said. Have a think about how that the choices you make in your own life might be able to reflect some of the values you hold in your heart about what kind of world you want for yourself and your kids. And also have a think about what Anika said when you're thinking about perhaps who you're voting for in a couple of months and which member of parliament in your particular area is voting in the direction of economic growth And sustainability, because the two do go hand in hand. As we've clearly seen, businesses don't work when Brisbane's underwater. Let's try to minimise how often that happens. I think that's a pretty good plan. I don't think I'd be called a a greeny fuckwit for for saying such a thing, or a cuck. I'm just like, no, I'd rather that my family who are up in Brisbane don't call to say, oh yeah, man, I'm on an island, uh, and I have been for the last day. (laughs) Can't quite get to the supermarket. Like that's No one can work. That's no good. Let's let's try to minimise how much that happens, and if, and if that means changing a few things about our lives, maybe that's an okay thing. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I'll see you on on Wednesday. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.